Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Tracheal intubation in children is thankfully a rarer event than in adults, but it also has not been as widely studied in terms of practice variations. Today we're talking with Dr. Christine Capone about a new article in AEM entitled Intubation Practice and Outcomes Among Pediatric Emergency Departments, a report from the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children, or near for kids Dr. Capone, who is first author on this paper, is a dual-boarded cardiac intensivist and assistant professor of pediatrics at Cohen Children's Medical Center. She is site lead for National Collaboratives for Quality Improvement in Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Units. While her main clinical and research interests lie within cardiac critical care, cardiomyopathy, and MIS-C, she is also interested in differences in intubation practices between various clinical settings, specifically between the PICU and CICU and the pediatric ED. We're thrilled to have her here to discuss this paper, and don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Hi, Dr. Capone, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the warm welcome and the opportunity to present on behalf of the Near for Kids and Policy Investigators. So I'm going to say at the outset that I am very grateful that you're talking to me now. I know that you're home on maternity leave, and if we hear um, little sounds coming from a little baby, we're all going to just say, oh, instead of complaining. <laughs> so let's talk about your paper. This paper comes out of uh, data from, as you said, the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children or NEAR for Kids. And so most emergency physicians listening will have some familiarity with the NEAR database, but can you tell us a little more about NEAR for Kids? Yeah, so um, the New for Kids stands for, as you said, the National Emergency Area Registry for Children. Um, this registry was developed by the Pediatric Acute Lung Industry and um, Septus Investigators, POLICI, as well as the National Emergency Area Registry uh, Investigators, which um, I think you're more familiar with as it's coordinated through the Department of Emergency Medicine up in Boston. Um, so Near for Kids um, is kind of like a subset of that, which is a multi-centered prospective registry for this advanced airway management um, in the pediatric intensive care unit, which is where it started. It's led by Dr. Akira Nishisaki from uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and now has over 20 participating centers in North America, 51 of these who participated in our study. Um, a subgroup of this um, has now become near for PEM, which is the National Emergency Registry for Pediatric Emergency Medicine, um, and that became a subgroup um, within the last year in 2021, with the primary goal being to improve advanced um, emergent airway management for critically ill children, regardless of where they present, and um, more importantly, to meaningfully improve patient outcomes as a result of this collaborative data collection. Wonderful. So you were looking at tracheal intubations in pediatric emergency departments and in pediatric and cardiac ICUs using this Near for Kids database from the years 2015 to 2018. So what questions were you trying to answer with this data in this paper? So the idea for this study actually started when I was called to the ED for a level one trauma um, it was on a known congenital cardiac patient. It was a patient with a failing Fontan. 
and we actually had a little time to prepare um, and talk about this kid's physiology. And like during that time, I noticed that there was some differences in the thought processes for um, the innovation approach and the idea for the study was essentially born. Um, and our primary aim was then to describe kind of patient provider and practice characteristics of emergency room tracheal intubations and compare that to tracheal intubations in the ICU. Um, ultimately hypothesizing that there would be differences between the groups and hope that we can use these differences in future quality improvement bundles. I was hoping to have a cardiac sub-analysis, however, there was not a large enough sample size for this. Okay. So tell me about your study design and a little bit about your methods. Um, so this was a prospective cohort study we conducted um, and this was across about 41 contributing institutions, 13 pediatric emergency room sites, and 51 pediatric cardiac ICUs within the Near for Kids registry. We looked at patient, provider, practice, demographic, um, all of those characteristics um, on each patient who underwent a primary or pharyngeal um, insertion of an endotracheal tube. Um, our statistical analysis, we really were looking and contrasting the aforementioned, like the patient provider practice care, like looking at all of these as big groups and then like sub-analyzing within those groups between the emergency room and then the pediatric ICUs, um, comparing primary and secondary outcomes between these two locations. Okay. And what did you use as your inclusion and exclusion criteria? So um, all patients, regardless of age, um, who underwent primary insertion of an endotracheal tube um, in any of these contributing pediatric and um, emergency rooms or ICUs from January 1st, 2015 through December 31st, 2018 were considered to be eligible. And then we excluded from that group anyone who underwent an ET tube exchange or those who had nasopharyngeal intubation. Um, the other group that we excluded were a diagnosis of cardiac surgical patients because these kids usually don't have a um, comparative group in the ED and we didn't want to create too much heterogeneity in our data. Okay, that makes sense. So what what kind of data about these patients is um, available to you through this database? Like what do they what do they collect? Um, it's a very, very rich database. There's the usual demographics, um, age, um, sex, nationality, race, um, and then there's actually just some patient-specific characteristics to airway intubation, the difficult airway features, um, things that you have to think about when you're intubating, um, diagnosis codes, indication for the intubation. Um, you're looking at the provider, who was the provider, um, what did they choose to intubate with, down to like the device size tube, cuffed, uncuffed, medication choices, you know, the famous question asked at all kind of pimping conferences to fellows. <laughs> oh. Um, and then what happened to them? You know, was it successful? Was there an adverse event associated with it um, to, to kind of um, help with, with outcome? Um, and so using all of these, we were able to, to, to see differences abroad um, in a broad range of groups, not only with our primary analysis, but we were able to get a couple of sub-analysis, particularly the infant subgroup, which was interesting. Okay. So your primary outcome was related to adverse events related to uh, tracheal intubation. So how were those defined? And um, I think you split them into severe versus non-severe. Yep. So um, the acronym TIAE stands for tracheal intubation associated event with the composite primary outcome being severe and non-severe. 
So the severe events were um, an intubation that was associated with a cardiac arrest, um, an esophageal intubation with a delayed recognition. Um, there was uh, vomiting if you witnessed aspiration, if there was low blood pressure requiring any type of um, intervention, whether that be fluid or uh, vasopressors, dental trauma, laryngospasm, malignant hypothermia, a pneumothorax, or any direct airway related injury. Whereas non-severe events included um, a main stem bronchial intubation or an esophageal intubation, but there was immediate recognition. Um, the, the kid vomited, but did not aspirate. There was hypertension, um, hyper, not hypo, but hypertension that required therapy, mm-hmm. nosebleeds, lip traumas, medication errors, arrhythmias, um, things like that. All right. So the dental was severe, but the lip trauma was not severe. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So how about you? That's what they were previously defined. Um, and so we tried to be consistent with other near for kids papers. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. Um, so what about your secondary outcomes? So our secondary outcomes included oxygen desaturation, um, which we defined as a pulse ox reading below 80% um, in patients that were able to be preoxygenated to a set higher than 90%. Um, uh, and then we further, I think, broke that out to 70% and then looked at other things like first pass success. So you included 756 tracheal intubations in 13 pediatric EDs. And 12,512 in 51 pediatric ICUs and cardiac ICUs. So tell me a little bit about the patient characteristics in this group. The children that were intubated in um, the EDs, they were significantly older than those in the ICUs. Um, And for this, that was 31 months uh, if they were intubated in the emergency room compared to 15 months um, in the ICU. There was differences in diagnosis and indications uh, for intubation. The while respiratory was the most common overall in both the emergency room and the ICU, it was more common in the ICU, 60% as a, uh, compared to um, the emergency room. There was um, a shock physiology and neurologic compromise. They were more likely to be cited as primary reasons for intubation in the emergency room, um, whereas kids, again, in the PICU were less likely to have neurologic compromise and more likely, for example, to be intubated for a procedural reason. Um, Then there were features of difficult airway that were reported in a greater percentage um, in the emergency room compared to the ICU, specifically limited neck mobility, which again speaks to that trauma um, indication that was also higher um, in the ED compared to the ICU. Um, and so we had a very uh, heterogeneous group and these kind of baseline characteristics kind of bore that out a lot. Okay. That makes sense. And what about the characteristics of those people doing the intubations in the ED versus the ICU? Um, that was actually really fascinating. So in the ED, there was a lot more fellows um, that were performing, fellows and residents actually performing um, intubations um, in the ED than that within the ICU. Um, I think that for the residents, that was 33% compared to just 11% um, in the ICU. Mm. Um, and uh, attendings were not intubating as frequently. 10% of uh, intubations were done by an attending in an, e- in an ED compared to like almost 20% in the ICU. Um, so there was a, a real big difference there that was particularly interesting. Um, and then the majority of these residents, because that was the big question, who were these residents? Were they 
um, or the ER residents that were used to intubating a lot in an adult setting and then were able to translate those skills or were these pediatric residents because we know that those pediatric skills um, are not really required anymore as part of that residency. So who are these residents that were actually intubating? It turned out that 80% of them were actually EM residents that um, uh, and not the pediatric residents that are performing it. Um, the other really interesting characteristic about those doing it is aside from the fact that um, they were just different in the level and experience of who did it, um, the use of video laryngoscopy was a lot more common in the ED, 64% compared, like so about two thirds compared to about a third in the ICU. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I, I was a little shocked by that, um, that degree of practice variation there. Yeah, I mean, me too. I really, really surprised, especially because, again, we said two thirds in the ED to one third um, in the ICU. And so then you would think that perhaps there would be a difference in outcomes. So like was like the whole idea is that you're going to have less esophageal intubation and more first attempt success, like you see kind of in the um, anesthesia pediatric studies um, patients in the OR. But that wasn't actually the case. The rates of esophageal intubation and first attempt success were not different despite that the tool used was um, significantly different. Um, and so I found that also quite interesting. Um, and so I know that video laryngoscopy in the OR is associated with better success and less adverse outcomes. We didn't see this. And so the best practice for video laryngoscopy in the ED versus the PICU is kind of unclear. Um, it's hard to say how- um, open the DLDL uh, <laughs> can of worms here. I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> well, well, for me, especially now, for me, it's kind of like, well, you know, if the person who's intubating, regardless of who they are, you know, you're not going to give A-Rod a new bat at the bottom of the ninth. You know, like, yep, kind of exactly. use what you're, what you're comfortable with. Um, so what other um, differences did you find in in practice, uh, practice variation besides the use of video laryngoscopy versus direct medications, um, which was one of the things that, um, in the initial case that sparked my interest was, um, was one of them that also bore out to be different, um, with emergency room providers using a lot more automate, um, and a lot more sucks than, um, the ICU, um, which is obviously nice because, suck this quick on, quick off, but you worry about malignant hypothermia. We didn't see much of that. Um, Dangolytics are used as a lower percentage in the emergency room. Um, like you're using it about like 10% of the time, 14% of the time. We're using it about 30 plus percent of the time in the ICU. Um, and the um, ED favored ketamine compared to kind of a fentanyl, um, the DAS combo in the, in the ICU, which was interesting. And then another interesting um, kind of, Something that we found that's not in the paper, but I found it also fascinating was use of lidocaine in the the neurotraumas. Um, we don't see that um, we don't see use of lidocaine that much at all. Actually, it's only used in one percent of both R and ICU cases, and it wasn't used um, that much in the neuro cases, which is kind of textbook. So um, it was somewhat interesting to see um, see these differences play out. Um, and ideally, we'd be able to, as this database expands, use them in different subgroups to understand if there is a role or a benefit to certain drug choices over the other. Oh, that would be interesting. Um, we alluded to this a little bit before we were talking about your primary outcomes. Uh, what did you? What else did you find about adverse events 
in the pediatric EDs versus the pediatric ICUs or cardiac ICUs? So um, aside from a lot of the practice um, differences, the in terms of the primary outcome, there was no difference in the adverse events um, between the emergency room and the ICU in terms of like the overall kind of composite. Um, and then when you looked at severe events, they did not differ. Um, and so despite all of these differences and um, an approach and provider and medicine and medication use, there was no differences there. And then if you take that to some of the secondary outcomes, such as um, first attempt success or number of attempts to be successful, um, it really didn't differ either by location. Um, the, which was again, quite curious because the first attempt success by a resident provider was very common um, in the emergency room. 71% of residents, um, again, this is the majority of EM residents that are performing these um, are successful. Um, and then uh, in addition to like looking again at the ICU where it's not the resident, where it's more of, again, fellows, nurse practitioners and attendings who are performing. Um, uh, everything and if you're in the EM residents having a higher first attempt success compared to basically general pediatric residents regardless of the location where they are so we were able to kind of um, um, show that benefit and kind of where experience kind of matters and lies and then with the other secondary outcome that we looked at that was on um, the oxygen desaturation to less than 80 um, there was no differences um, uh, the ED seemed to have less desaturation than the ICU. So about 13% of adverse events um, being defined as this oxygen saturation less than 80 happened in the ED, whereas we saw about 17 plus percent um, of oxygen less than 80 happening in the ICU. So the natural inclination is just to say, like, obviously we do it better in the ED, but we're not going to say that. What what did you, <laughs> what did your group make of that? <laughs> that was part of um, how we wanted to phrase the discussion. So ED wanted to say what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we settled on um, that it's probably due to a lower proportion of patients who are in the emergency room being intubated for a primary respiratory deterioration. We talked about that was a big difference in the beginning. Um, and so if a lot of kids are being intubated in the ICU for this reason, and it's more than, than compared to the ED, and there were more infants that were intubated, in the um, ICU as compared to the ED, they have a lower physiologic reserve. Um, and the other possibility is that there's more cardiac children intubated in the PICU than the ED. And not only do they have a lower reserve, but there's a portion of them who are cyanotic at baseline. Uh -huh. um, we're not able to kind of confirm this with the current data, but we thought this may be the case because there was a difference for DSAT less than 80, but there was not a difference for DSAT less than 70. I see. Okay. Well, those are all, those are all valid points. <laughs> um, so what other takeaways should we glean from this study and what comes next? So there was, there were, despite this, like a, a bunch of differences that um, I've, we've mentioned throughout this podcast and the paper, there was differences in the patient population, the provider who intubated the practice that they used video um, versus direct medicines that they chose, we found a similar overall um, adverse event rate. Um, and to me, this and to us, this suggested that each division where an intubation happens has its kind of own plan of comfort and expertise, that when you execute it, it minimizes adverse events, um, but we can always do better. And so next steps would be individually targeting practice uh, factors associated with adverse events 
within your location and to QI bundles that you can then assimilate into your current practice within your division. So a really good example of this would be in the infant subgroup, there was a less first attempt success and there was more adverse events. They were more likely to desaturate it in, um, in the emergency room when you compare them as an infant to the whole emergency room cohort. And then when you compare the infant in the emergency room to infants in the, in the PICU. Um, so again, you know, difficult, like less attempted first attempt success, more of adverse events when you have this comparison. Anatomic features came up, medications used came up, experience of providers were some differences that you can now incorporate into future intubation strategies specifically for this subgroup that you know you might have to intubate. So a specific example would be incorporating a intubation process algorithm that would look at neuromuscular blockade, for example. So we know that um, neuromuscular blockade in the infant group from the paper um, was actually not used that much, only like about 50, 60% used neuromuscular blockade in this group, whereas it was overwhelmingly used in like over 95% of PICU intubation. So use of neuromuscular blockade in this group, deferring inexperienced providers from attempting intubations on infants, um, especially with limited mouth opening, using op apneic oxygenation, because again, this group is at high risk for oxygen desaturation. And so um, some of these could be incorporated into future, future bundles. And then if you have this ongoing perspective data collection, you could see how these interventions change and if you actually can change um, your adverse event rate and number over time. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, and thank you for coming on to talk with us about your paper and congratulations on it, as well as congratulations on your new baby. Thank you so much. This was great and um, glad to have a chance to um, highlight a lot of the multidisciplinary work that really went into um, went into this. And so um, really appreciate being able to come on here today and meeting you um, over audio. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.